0: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hears from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from the Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my tenth election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Welcome to Brain Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, Brain Stuff. Lauren Vogelbaum here. In the year 1304 CE, King Edward I of England laid siege to Stirling Castle, home of the last holdouts of a Scottish rebellion. Behind the castle's thick walls, Sir William Oliphant and his Scottish loyalists endured months of aerial bombardment from perhaps the greatest collection of siege engines the world had ever seen. Edward had ordered all Scottish churches stripped of their lead, which was used to build powerful catapults called trebuchets, the largest of which could hurl boulders weighing over 300 pounds, that's over 140 kilos. The greatest of Edward's trebuchets was christened Ludgar, or the war wolf. The war wolf required five master carpenters and 50 workmen to build, and was so terrifying in scale that Oliphant had no choice but to surrender. But not so fast, said Edward. He wanted to fire the war wolf first and even built a special viewing platform so ladies of his court would have a good view of the destruction it wrought. We spoke with William Gerstel, a science journalist and author of The Art of the Catapult. He explained, Edward almost bankrupted himself building all these trebuchets, and by God, he was going to use them. In a theatrical display of domination, Edward pulled the trigger on the warwolf, sending its massive projectile arcing through the sky and crashing through the castle's 12-foot-thick walls that's about three and a half meters of stone. The rebellion was officially over, and Edward had earned himself a new nickname, the Hammer of the Scots. Before gunpowder was popularized in the mid-14th century, there were no cannons to launch heavy lead balls through enemies and their walls. But that didn't stop creative warfarers from devising ways to toss stuff at each other. One of the most effective was the catapult, a device that uses a spring-loaded arm or a heavy counterweight to hurl large objects over great distances. There are three general types of catapults. The first, called a ballista or tension catapult, looks like an oversized crossbow and works on the same principles, generating force from the tension of the bow arms. The ballista was invented by the Greeks around 399 BCE. The second, known as the onager or torsion catapult, gets its power from a rope-like bundle of animal sinew and hair. The rope is twisted tightly to create torsion, which, when released, generates enough force to launch a small projectile from a catapult arm. The Romans named the onager after a wild donkey that delivered an especially strong kick. The third type of catapult is the trebuchet, perhaps the simplest yet most powerful catapult of all. The arm of a trebuchet is actually a long lever that swung into motion by pulling downward with ropes or dropping a heavy counterweight. While trebuchet is a French word, the technology is believed to have originated in China in the first couple centuries CE. The very earliest trebuchets, like those first used in China and later in Europe in the early Middle Ages, were people-powered, meaning the lever arm of the catapult was swung by a group of soldiers pulling on a rope. But the real innovation in trebuchet technology came in the 12th century, with the advent of the counterweight trebuchet. We also spoke with Michael Fulton, a history professor at Langara College in British Columbia and author of Siege Warfare During the Crusades. He explained that an elevated basket is weighted with hundreds or even thousands of pounds of rocks. That's the counterweight. When the basket is dropped, it pulls down on a rope connected to the short end of a long lever arm that swings on an axle. He said, As the short end of the lever is pulled down, the long end rises at a proportionally greater rate. When you add a sling at the end of the arm, you force the projectile to travel even farther during the same amount of time, which adds to your rate of acceleration. It's all really basic physics at a fundamental level. Gerstel has built plenty of trebuchets, including a DIY design using wood and PVC that he named Little Ludgar after Edward's trebuchet. He said, The longer that lever and the heavier the weight, the farther the projectile goes. He noted that the counterweight has to weigh approximately a hundred times the object you're trying to throw. Gerstel once made a trebuchet with a 500 pound or 227 kilo counterweight that was still only powerful enough to launch a small cantaloupe. During the middle ages, the construction of fortified cities led to a new type of military campaign, the siege. Laying siege to a walled city required new war machines like battering rams for splintering thick doors and siege towers for breaching high walls. But one of the earliest and most powerful innovations was the trebuchet. One of the first recorded uses of a trebuchet in battle was during the siege of Thessalonica in the late 6th century CE. Thessalonica was a Byzantine stronghold under attack by the Avars, a collection of Central Asian tribes who used a people-powered trebuchet that was likely inspired by ancient Chinese weaponry. But those primitive traction trebuchets could only launch small projectiles and functioned as anti-personnel weapons, not castle killers. Fulton explained, traction trebuchets were like an archer on steroids. You're definitely not smashing down solid walls in the early Middle Ages. That would happen in the 13th century when counterweight trebuchets were being built at larger and larger scales all across Europe. Those truly massive trebuchets would be constructed off-site and then assembled on the battlefield itself. While a counterweight trebuchet could toss a boulder over a castle wall, there were definitely trade-offs. For one, it took a really long time to reload the counterweight. Fulton says that the smaller traction trebuchets could fire up to four shots a minute, while the biggest trebuchets were lucky to get off one shot every half hour. Catapults and trebuchets were not limited to firing conventional projectiles like stones and lead balls. According to one lurid 14th century account, the Mongols used their catapults to launch plague ridden corpses, an early type of bioweapon, into a medieval city in modern day Ukraine. Other stories tell of dead horses being slung by trebuchet over castle walls to sicken the enemy with the stench. But Fulton, who has witnessed the forces unleashed during the throwing sequence of a large trebuchet, is skeptical about the accuracy of such accounts. He said, if you try to put something organic into one of those slings, chances are it's going to be ripped apart before you can throw it effectively. Fulton has more confidence in the tales of human heads being lobbed back and forth by trebuchets at the siege of Nicaea in 1097 during the First Crusade. He said, that was more psychological than biological. And when it comes to incendiary weapons like Greek fire, which was a sort of early napalm that involved pine tar, sulfur, and naturally occurring petroleum, but the recipe for which is lost, Fulton says that he doubts that Edward or anyone else was launching Greek fire bombs from trebuchets with any regularity. It was more likely that castle defenders would try to fire incendiaries at the trebuchet to burn the weapon to the ground. Though even if Edward's legendary trebuchet only launched rocks, there simply was no siege weapon that was as terrifying to the enemy and as entertaining to the troops. Fulton said, at a fundamental level, you're not going to build these engines unless they have value, but there is value in that intimidation factor. In general, kings like to have big things they can show off. Today's episode was written by Dave Ruse and produced by Tyler Klang. For more on this and lots of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brainstuff is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.